Hey, thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. If you like this episode, please follow us and tell one of your colleagues about the interview you're about to hear or have heard in the past. We hope you enjoy our conversations and that you'll listen to others in our library. If you have any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions, please reach out. We'll do our best to incorporate them. Thanks again. Listeners, welcome to the Real Perspectives podcast. This is your host, Vladimir Bosanets. I am the co-founder and publisher of The Registry. Today's podcast episode is a little different than usual. We recently held a Northern California life science webinar, which I found to be interesting and informative about where the industry is today and how it's shaping up in the near future. As you'll see, our panel is comprised of investors, developers, brokers, and construction companies whose daily work in this area gives them just the kind of exposure needed to really understand all the undercurrents impacting this very important sector of Northern California's and the national economy. Enjoy the show. So uh, before we, we kick it off, um, I do want to really quickly give an opportunity to our panel members to, to say hello and, and introduce themselves. So I'm going to start, James, with you. You're, you're sort of the, the, the first face here on the screen. Um, so uh, why don't you say hi to our audience? Great. Thank you, Vlad. Good morning, everyone. James Bennett. I'm the vice chairman at CBRE in the Palo Alto office, and I am uh, in the brokerage world, representing tenants and landlords uh, up and down the coast, primarily in the Bay Area, that uh, have done work in San Diego up to Seattle as well. Uh, recently joined CBRE to uh, expand their life science practice group, both uh, in the Bay Area and uh, up and down the coast. Awesome. Thanks, James. Uh, Fred? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Fred Knapp, and I'm the managing partner of Transwestern Ventures. Uh, Transwestern is a national real estate company with uh, leasing, property management, development, and investment capabilities, uh, about 2,000 employees across 33 markets. And uh, Ventures is the opportunistic investment arm of the Transwestern family of companies uh, and very focused on the life science industry nationally. Great. Thank you, Fred. Paul? I'm Paul Nolan. Um, I run our acquisition department at LMB Realty Advisors. Um, we're basically a pension fund advisor with about 10 billion in assets under management nationwide. Um, we have about a billion dollars in three life science uh, purpose-built projects, two in San Francisco, Bay Area, and one in Boston. Um, and uh, happy to be here today. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Steve? Yeah, hello everybody and thanks for joining. I'm Steve Smith. I'm a senior project manager here at Goodell & Coco Construction. Uh, we've been in business for in the Bay Area here for about a little over 43 years. Oh, and we have a division that specializes in life science and I'm a big part of that here at Goodell & Coco. Excellent. Uh, and last but not least, Greg. Hi everyone, I'm Greg Walker with Divco West. I oversee our national portfolio, both on the office and life science side. Uh, it's currently roughly about 15 million square feet and uh, just over three and a half million square feet of life science space, space across the country. All right, excellent, great. Well, um, I would like to kind of kick us off in our conversation with a little bit of an overview of sort of where where we are here in uh, you know Q4 of uh, 
2022. Maybe maybe we'll start off with uh, Paul and you, Fred, because you guys have a little bit of a national sort of perspective, and then Greg, you also. Um, but but would would love to just kind of get a sense from you know high level, you know what the industry is doing kind of across the country, not just in Northern California. And then we'll zero in. Um, you know, specifically what, what is happening in uh, Northern California. Also, please uh, don't reveal all your secrets because I want to, you know, have this part of the conversation as we as we talk more about the um, industry. So uh, just kind of give us a bit of a, you know, a bit of an overview and sort of perspective, you know, if, if, if you were to, you know, summarize it in a couple of minutes. Um, Fred, why don't we start with, with you? Sure. Um, obviously, uh, it's, it's tough to find an industry that's immune from um, rising interest rates and uh, a looming recession. I think uh, the life, in, life science industry um, certainly is, is not. But uh, to some degree, a number of companies have, um, you know, a lot of technologies and sciences and, and drugs have been in the works for many years. And um, those are coming to market. Um, there's been a tremendous amount of capital that we all know. Uh, has been raised for the life science industry over the past years, and that's grown exponentially. It's tapered somewhat this year, but uh, still well above uh, previous year's level. So um, while it's it's not entirely immune to um, what is happening from a macroeconomic standpoint and, and rising interest rates, um, there is still tremendous demand in the space. And um, depending on where you are, what markets, and what type of product uh, for the life cycle of a life science company uh, there is there we we do see supply demand imbalances and opportunities for uh, developers and investors to to take advantage of that. Great, great, and we'll get into some of that also. Uh, Paul, your thoughts on kind of uh, state of the industry at this point? Yeah, I mean, I'm very positive about it. I mean, we're we're very long the sector, and we don't really get too caught up in year over year. But I think anyone that expected 2021 to be a repeat um, was probably unrealistic. Um, but when you look at the existing established clusters of Cambridge, South San Francisco, vacancies are still extraordinary low, um, even with all the new supply that's come online. And I think when you compare that against industrial and multi and some of the other um, you know, performing sectors, life science looks as good as any. Um, and there's really not that much construction when you actually look at it um, compared to some of the other product types. So we're still very bullish on the sector. We think it's long-term. People are still getting sick. you got an aging demographic. None of that's changed. Um, we certainly think, as Fred said, the cost of capital and, and debt markets are certainly going to put a lot of projects on the sideline that maybe people were anticipating coming, which we think that's going to benefit the people that are already out of the ground or have existing products. Um, but we don't see anything about our original thesis for, you know, healthcare that's changed. And in fact, I think the fact that the vacancies rates and sublease rates are so low kind of proves that this is a very resilient sector. Okay. Interesting. Greg? Yeah. Similar to uh, what these gentlemen said, you know, the, the innovation doesn't really stop. And, um, you know, 21 was was a bit of an anomaly, uh, I think, if you look historically and what we're going to see from an absorption perspective in San Diego, Bay Area, Cambridge, you know, be on par with kind of the years prior to, to 20 and 21. Uh, so still extremely healthy. We're, uh, you know, similar to Paul, we're, we're long-term investors in this space and have been for some time. So continue to remain bullish. And there's some there's some things we'll, we'll get into a little later in the discussion that I think there are reasons for optimism. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, James, you're on the leasing side. You, you see basically everything that's, you know, happening on the, on the ground in terms of, you know, demand and supply. Um, what, what are, what are your thoughts on kind of Q4 here and, you know, peaking into the next year? Well, I think I'll echo some of the comments already made in terms of demand. Yes, we're, we're off from where we were last year. Um, our research team is tracking something like 4 million square feet of demand in the Bay Area right now, which by any historical standards, and I, I go back 20 plus years in this industry, um, that is very healthy demand, um, but it's off 20 plus percent from last year. Okay. And you'll see the same trends in venture funding as, as we've all seen. We're, we're not going to repeat 2021, but at least through um, three quarters of this year, we're still on pace to be probably the second or third highest year ever in terms of VC capital. Um, the process is slower. The amounts are a little tighter. I think the discretion has, has certainly picked up among the, the VCs in terms of what they're, what they're providing, what their expectations are as, as far as growth. So you know, we're, we're seeing that uh, have some impact on, on demand at, at the kind of Series A, Series B levels. Um, we've also seen, obviously, the, the tight IPO markets has, has kind of opened up the doors for big pharma and big bio to come in and, and selectively pick and choose among either scientific programs for partnerships or to actually acquire outright some companies. We've seen some of that. Right. I think um, we anticipated we'd see more, but uh, I, I do think it's still working its way through the process, I expect we'll see quite a bit more next year. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, thank you. Um, Steve, on, on your end, on the construction side, um, over the last, I don't know, 18 months or so, there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, new projects coming online, you know, conversions, all of this, you know, lab space that, you know, wasn't able to meet the demand. Um, what are you guys seeing? How is the industry for, for you guys? And, and are you as optimistic uh, or, you know, measurably optimistic, I would say, as, as, as the rest of the folks here on, on the call. Yeah, Vlad, you know, we're, we're kind of the same as, as, as everybody's kind of speaking to. Things have definitely cooled off, uh, settled down a little bit, and, and that's not always such a bad thing. Um, we're lucky. We're, we're involved with some of the larger development projects, so it's kind of long-term. So what started a year to a year and a half ago is going to keep us busy maybe for the next year, year and a half. But uh, we're diversified. We've definitely seen a tightening in the market with the amount of expansion with some of the uh, of our existing biopharma clients. But there's still good projects. The you know the phone's still ringing. We're pretty happy about it, and we're our fingers are crossed, and and we think it's going to be a strong year next year. Okay. Okay. So let me let me address this um, uh, you know point about you know 2021 versus 2022 uh, more specifically around VC funding. Um, I, I you know I know this is this is a you know relatively known kind of thing for you gentlemen, uh, but I am curious you know if if you know the rest of the audience might want to just hear a little bit about sort of how much it has leveled off in terms of VC investing. Um, and do you guys have any insights on? Uh, you know, why, why that is. Paul, let me put you on the spot here as a, as a, as a first. 
Yeah. So what I would say kind of back up is um, to understand where the three funding components of life science come from. So when you think about it compared to other sectors, it has, you know, VC funding, which is actually the smallest. And then NIH is the next biggest. And then big pharma is actually over 50% of the funding, depending on what resources you look at. So I think that VC gets talked about the most in the last year. It's certainly, um, you know, a lot of the kind of startup companies are getting funded, but VC is really the smallest component of the stool. But I agree with what James said. Everyone's getting concerned about the year-over-year drop in VC, whether it's Boston or San Francisco, but it could be the second largest year on history for VC. And so I think it, the way it's been described to me is we were driving 120 miles an hour and now we're driving 100 miles an hour, but you know, no, everyone's lost the fact that we would be happy if we were driving 70 miles an hour. So I, we view it as it needed to slow down because some bad science was getting funded. But today people are being more, one, VCs are very much not wanting the money to be spent on real estate. And that's why TI costs are being more put on the landlord. But what's really happening is it just, it was a record year and it was kind of an anomaly just because a lot of companies in science got funded in 2021, but that shouldn't be the barometer of life science funding. You should look at NIH and Big Pharma as well. Yeah. Greg, are you seeing NIH and Big Pharma continue to pour, pour money into the sector? Yeah, and in fact, we, we think it'll accelerate this year. If you look at what Big Pharma is sitting on, over a trillion dollars of dry powder to invest in R&D, uh, you've got 46% of their you know current manufacturing pipeline coming upon patent expiration over the next five years, really looking to replenish those, um, you know, those pipelines with newer biologics and, and investing or partnering with young companies. So we think Big Pharma is going to play a huge part in the coming years. I think the values, you know, in talking to some of the CEOs of big pharma values have come to a place where they can play again, where they, you know, these younger companies were getting valued in the public markets far beyond where big pharma was going to price them. So I think that that lends itself, uh, you know, an opportunity for those guys to become active again. We're tracking the M&A activity. It seems to be ticking up for this year as it was last year. So uh, we think that's going to be a, a big driver. And if you just look at what those folks have done from a real estate perspective, I mean, there are certainly some of those requirements out here in the Bay Area, but in Boston alone, there's been over a million and a half square feet of leases signed by Big Pharma just this year mm-hmm. in 2022 with another 350 or so kind of in, in process now. So if you think about that, uh, they're really doubling down not only on their presence in in both these uh, you know kind of the core life science markets, but I, I really think that's in anticipation of hopefully some some funding, some partnerships, and some M and A activity in those markets as well. And on the on the back end of this process, obviously is is the exit, and and that could in, could include and in, you know an IPO, right? Um, James and Fred, are are you guys seeing on on the IPO side? Things kind of slowing down as well a little bit, or um, what, what is what is happening there? Is is it changing, or is it sort of nor- normalizing? What's 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 the best way to describe that? I can I can start. I I see it quite stagnated just because of the the health of the public markets right now. I think there have been only twenty IPOs nationwide in in life science this year. Last year, I believe there were something over forty. And even even towards the end of last year, I think we had some certainly some indications that the public markets were getting somewhat turbulent. So I think we'll see 
continued stagnation in, in that arena. But again, as, as Greg alluded to, we're expecting this, this huge cash reserve in, in big pharma and big bio to, to more than make up for that, that shortfall. So I think good science will continue to attract funding. I think this time around, it's going to be through through partnerships and M&A as opposed to public markets. Yeah, interesting. Fred, any thoughts from you? Sure. I think, um, uh, you know, it, it, certainly there's a constriction of available capital um, from where it's been. Uh, but at the same time, I, you know, we, we just kind of look at the growth of the industry as a whole. And, um, you know, I think either Greg or or Paul mentioned, um, you know, it's, it's, there's still demand for the drugs, uh, you know, 2021 biologics counted for 46% of all drug sales versus about 25% a decade ago. Um, and based on some of the reports that we've seen sales of biologics are expected to grow at a compounded annual rate of about 10% from roughly 340 billion in 2021 to 540 billion in 2025. So the, the growth of the industry and the consumption of biologics um, is is there and it's going to grow. Um, obviously, we're going through a period of, of constricted um, capital markets, but you know, I think as, as either Greg or, or Paul mentioned previously, um, these companies have long-term business plans yeah. and um, have the ability to to weather uh, some of you know some of these capital markets issues. Um, you know, as long as the science works and uh, there is demand for the science. There's demand for the cures and for what they're doing. Uh, so from our standpoint as a, as a real estate developer, owner, operator, um, you know, we are trying to supply uh, that demand and that growth. And, and certainly um, as you look at this industry and the growth potential within this industry compared to others, um, you know, it's, it's at some point could the industrial market saturate, um, you know, and, and online, consumption of goods and, and even, um, you know, just consumption of goods. If we come into a recession, um, you know, could that kind of taper off? Certainly. But, um, you know, the demand for biologics uh, and this type of science is, is certainly there. It's going to continue to grow um, because it saves lives. Yeah. Yeah. makes sense. Um, really quickly for our audience, uh, I've seen a couple of folks have posted questions in the, in the little Q&A area. Please go ahead and do that. I'll try to incorporate your your uh, um, um, your inquiries into into our conversation. We won't have a formal Q and A, so this is really the the best way to do that. Um, I'll, I'll get to these questions in in one minute, um, Steve. For for you, um, you know, the question is, um, you know, lab space is now being used for all kinds of different things, whether it's um, you know medicine, whether it's you know. Uh, you know, medical sort of, uh, sort of, you know, devices, but, but there's other things also like food and cosmetics and, and, and things like, like that are, are, are you seeing from, from, from your point of view, um, kind of, you know, demand for, for, for this kind of stuff, you know, growing or, or is it still kind of lab space without sort of a, uh, predetermined use, if you will, for, for how it's, how it's going to be utilized? Yeah, Vlad, for some reason, our, my response to that would be it's really mostly the way it always was. Um, we're hearing rumor of a lot of uh, the different, there's a lot of startups with the, you know, the food genetics and all that other stuff, but we're still with the, the biomed type side of the business, um, you know, for pharma. And we haven't seen a lot of the other stuff. Um, maybe, hopefully that'll change because, uh, 
you know, with the slowing down and on one side of it, it's always nice if another side picks up, but sure. that's, that's kind of where we're at. Sure. And what about all the, you know, stories that we've heard over the last couple of years in terms of, um, you know, uh, long, long times to, you know, get equipment and, you know, supplies, the the whole supply chain sort of issue. Um, you know, I know that's been front and center for, for uh, you guys, but there has been some ease in that as well, right? Could, could you give us a little bit of a sense of, of sort of on from from your point of view, you know, how are things evolving and maybe what should developers um, expect to see? So from our side of it, what we're experiencing is we're seeing improvements in some, some areas and actual um, deterioration in other areas. For instance, mechanical equipment, some of the Petri units, the DOAS units that we use for 100% outside air and the big exhaust fan systems for the labs and stuff like that. The lead times have actually gotten a little bit better. Uh, where we're running into big problems now and what's actually deteriorated substantially is the electrical equipment. Any of the big switchgear, big transformer, bus duct and stuff like that. You know, six months ago, I could tell you that I could get you, uh, you know, a PG&E upgrade. Aside from the PG&E, all the components that we have to do, the main switchgear uh, and everything else, I could say, yeah, we're looking at maybe six to eight months. Now, I mean, I get reports, I got a report from Siemens yesterday on a lot of their, you know, larger amperage type equipment. It's a year, it's over a year. It can be, some of it can be, you know, 60, 70% um, increase in the time that it's taken to get all this equipment. So it's, it's having an impact. And, and, you know, obviously things have slowed down a little bit. We were hoping that with the slowdown, there would be an improvement, but for some reason, uh, there's still deterioration in some areas. And like we always tell our customers, get in there, um, put these projects together faster, better, sooner so that we can get these things ordered. But um, it, it's kind of all over the map is what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, one interesting point that you guys mentioned is, um, um, you know, an evolution of what's happening between the, you know, the tenant and the landlord in terms of, you know, TIs, you know, that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of how, how that's evolving? Um, uh, one of the comments here in the, in the, um, you know, Q and A actually specifically asked, uh, in South San Francisco, but I don't know if, if there are certain, you know, other mini clusters around the Bay area where, um, you know, these dynamics are, you know, less relevant, more, more relevant. James, maybe let's start with you, but, I, but I'd love to hear what um, Greg and Paul have to say also. Well, I'd, I'd start by saying that the, the inflation in TI costs and the time frame to complete order and complete TIs has certainly affected the entire region. There's, there's, no, there's no area that's, that's immune to it or, or has been treating it differently. We've seen um, a couple of major trends. One is that TI allowances have, have gone up to reflect the, the higher cost of, of doing the improvements. Um, landlords have, have obviously benefited from significantly higher rents. So there, there was some room to sort of push those up. I think we were, we were stuck at 150 a foot for probably better part of a decade. <laughs> um, and we started to see it creep up um, 17, 18, 19, uh, into 175, 185. Um, more recently, we're now seeing 200 is, is really the norm and 225, not, uh, not uncommon on some of the transactions that have happened uh, for larger tenants. 
But I think most importantly, the trend we're seeing right now with PIs is for smaller tenants and VC-backed companies who are now taking a, a much more careful look at the uh, the capex for operating these companies. There's there's been a real flight to both second generation space and some of the the spec lab builds that a few of the developers have been fairly proficient at building out. So you are definitely seeing from both a cost standpoint and also a time to occupancy standpoint, a flight to existing lab space. So subleases, a number of them have not even hit the market because growing tenants have have taken the spaces ahead of that curve. And I think, uh, again, spec space developers who are putting product on the market right now, I think have a um, clear advantage over buildings that are asking tenants to come in and actually work with them to plan and build TIs. Even if the landlord is providing the vast majority of that capital uh, for smaller tenants, it's, it's really speed to speed to space, speed to getting that science um, up and running. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Greg, Paul. Yeah. Um, I, I think James hit it on the head. I mean, they're, they're you know, venture back companies are in, you know, cash conservation mode and if they can avoid, uh, the out-of-pocket, right? Um, a, a, a shorter lease term, right? So the overall, econ- uh, the over- uh, overall economic package is smaller, uh, that sort of flexible, and getting in, getting in sooner, right? We talked about some of the delays in construction. That's a problem for young companies when they need to get in there and start running their experiments. The capital out-of-pocket over and above what a landlord's going to provide, that's a problem. And then, you know, typically if you're providing 200 you know, $225 a foot, you're going to want more term. And so if a, if a tenant, you know, series AB company can get existing space, a shorter term, um, and they can get it sooner rather than later. So that's, that's what they're going to do right now. Um, and so we're seeing that, but as, as James mentioned, you know, certainly on, on some of the, the deals where we are providing that, you know, let's just call it larger than normal TI, um, you know, the rents are, are correspondingly going up, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're willing to pay that extra dollar or whatever it is a foot, um, you know, to, to not come out of pocket. A dollar today is worth more to them than a than dollar in five years. So, um, so as long, you know, as long as the rents continue to you know, kind of jive with the TI, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be okay to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the only other trend I would mention is we're seeing the ratio of lab to office kind of tilt more towards lab. So when you when you think about these, if it was 50-50 or 60-40 in the past um, with COVID, a lot of people have learned that they can put more of the back office, whether it's accounting or sales, the true office portion, leave that at home and build out more lab, which obviously is more expensive for the landlord. But the good news is on the, on the releasing, that space really never kind of changes. As James said, it's kind of been the same for many, many years. So that's a good thing from a ownership perspective. But um, we have seen in, in Boston and San Francisco, the percentage of a lab seems to be uh, the one that's been going up versus office. Interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. And one of the questions in our, in our, in our um, you know, Q&A area here specifically asked that, is it, is that driven by work from home or, or, um, or some other, uh, some other reasons? Well, I think it, it's certainly you can't do lab experiments at home. So depending on the company, um, it, you know, clearly that's the easiest thing to move home. Um, and then secondly, I think it's just when you're talking about paying 750 or $8 on space, um, you can probably 
find cheaper office space. And those people are probably the, the less important part of the operation um, to do it. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons, but it really depends on the company because as these companies mature, some of these really big companies actually have a lot of office space because they have a big sales department, big accounting. So I think a lot of it actually has to do with where the company is in its life cycle. And that really, if you think about these big Pfizer and Moderna campuses, they actually probably tilt more towards, you know, just regular office space because they have a lot more of those components that when you're just a couple of people rolling out of Stanford and need a bench, you don't really need an accounting or IT department. So I think it really depends on the, the tenancy. Yeah. Um, one of the questions here, which sort of segues into, into, into what, what I wanted to ask you guys also is, you know, what is happening with the markets that are kind of, you know, um, you know, an hour, hour and a half, two hours away kind of from the, from the, you know, clusters are, are, are you guys seeing any interest in, uh, in, you know, life science growing, growing there? Um, one example, obviously is UC Davis, um, uh, you know, that's sort of, you know, uh, adjacent to Northern, to, you know, to, you know, Bay Area effectively. Um, but also in, also in other markets, um, you know, whether it's San Diego, Seattle, uh, you know, Cambridge, are, are you guys seeing the market expand geographically? I myself, uh, you know, a lot of some of our new customers, we still have um, life science lab builds out in Pleasanton, you know, in outlying areas. Uh, we've got a project in Fremont. We've got, you know, they're still spread out, but I think there's been some retraction in that regard as well, where everybody was trying to turn the entire Bay Area into life science. I think it's kind of retracted back to the most of, you know, the South San Francisco area is always going to be the nucleus and the hot spot. But there's right. definitely still business happening out there in the outlying areas, no doubt. Uh, James? I, I think... Um, yeah. yeah, please. Sorry, Vlad, I was, uh, I was, I was going to jump in. So we, we have a, a project that we're developing in, in Vacaville, uh, about 45 minutes outside of UC Berkeley and about 15 minutes from UC Davis. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's interesting. I think it depends on uh, what the purpose of the facility is. We're, we're focusing... Um, primarily on uh, biomanufacturing and and while you know we're trying to build a, a facility that's as flexible as possible to cast the net as wide as possible to accommodate um, as many users as we can uh, that seems to be the use where there is the most demand and, and those are companies um, that are in the bay area around the peninsula that um, are just looking for more space and frankly yeah. the the cost of converting a warehouse or um, you know, converting, converting a three-story 80s built office building um, is hugely expensive, but it's also a drain on operations. So something that is purpose-built, where there is more space, certainly where there is labor, um, you know, in our location, Solano Community College has uh, one of, it's one of two universities around the country that has a four-year biomanufacturing program, um, which is incredibly attractive to tenants as well. But, you know, people talk about the demand going out there from uh, the Bay Area, but you don't hear as much about the demand coming the other way from UC Davis and from Sacramento, where there really is not available space. Um, you know, and, and I think I saw a comment as well about ag and food tech. Um, there's a tremendous amount of ag and food tech coming from the Sacramento and, and Davis area. So, you know, while some might say we're going out away from the Bay Area. We we kind of feel like we're right in the crosshairs um, to to receive demand from coming from both 
sides. Uh, so, it, you know, again, I, I think it kind of depends on the use and what you're targeting and, and what kind of demand you're trying to serve. But we're certainly seeing it um, in the outer areas as well. Right. And Fred, that's a, that's a very good point. I was, I was going to go there next, actually, because you guys have the project in Vacaville. Uh, so certainly on the outskirts uh, of sort of the you know, region, if you will, um, but, but it's a manufacturing product, right? And part of that is also driven by, um, you know, the sort of overexposure and maybe manufacturing um, in other countries, which, which we've seen can have an impact um, during times like, you know, COVID. So let's talk a little bit about that also. You know, uh, that certainly is an interesting aspect of sort of the evolution of the life science space. Um, Fred, I'll, I'll let you kind of talk sort of about the kind of bigger picture strategy about that. But I'd love, I'd love others to sort of chip chip in and tell you know tell us a little bit about kind of what you are seeing in general. You know, will this drive more you know life science, biotech, manufacturing back into the in, into the U.S. and 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 where is this going to happen? Sure. I mean, I I think um, it's it's a space that we love, and that's really where we're focusing a lot of time and attention um, because we're seeing tremendous demand. I mean, from a landlord's perspective, you have companies when they hit that manufacturing stage, they're either, you know, um, they've received FDA approval for their drug or have had positive results of phase three and need to anticipate um, that growth. Um, they're probably at a stage where they've uh, either done it in-house to a degree or have relied on CMOs and, and don't want to, to have to do that going forward. Um, you know, also just leasing to CMOs is, is um, uh, a huge possibility there. Uh, you know, there's, there's tremendous backlog um, as we understand it within the CMO market um, and, and companies are even having to pay fees to get on the waiting list. Um, and so I think this goes back to, again, the, all of the money and the investment and the growth in the industry and a huge wave of uh, production that needs to come online um, to basically start earning revenue from a lot of drugs that have been in process and been in R&D for many years. Uh, you know, we see a, a tremendous lack of capacity um, to service those. And, and from a landlord's perspective, when a company gets to that stage, they're typically taking down large chunks of space. They're investing heavily in the facility themselves. So therefore they want longer term leases, you know, 10 to 15 year leases, the ability to control the space for a long period of time. Um, and, you know, typically their credit is strong or improving, um, you know, versus the challenge of, of having, whether it's incubator lab space um, that a company may make it or may not, or they may, grow rapidly and, and outgrow the space and put the space on the sublease market. There's just much more transition. So uh, from an institutional investment standpoint, it's a it's an area uh, both from a demand standpoint that we think is underserved, but also um, you know many components about the, the tenancy and, and the lease structure that are very attractive uh, in terms of sales and exits. Paul, Greg? Yeah, uh, we, I think we... Also? We, we're very bullish on onshoring. Um, we think it's going to happen. Legislation just got passed to mm -hmm. the government's going to fund some money. Um, and I would say the way we look at it is we're not, we're not going to go build GMP everywhere. We certainly think that the existing clusters, that's part of the ecosystem. When you think at you need money, you need talent, you need R&D space. You also, in our opinion, we're talking to the tenancy, and this is why Boston, San Francisco have such a lead on the other markets is when you look at the East Bay, there's a lot of flex space to do that. You need that, in our opinion, within a 30 to 45 minute drive time of the R&D space. No one wants to drive or have to get on an airplane to go do that. Like the venture capital want to be able to see it. 
and the scientists need to be able to go back and forth between the East Bay and the peninsula. So that's why we think the existing clusters will grow faster and bigger than startup clusters, just because you really need everything from incubator lab uh, space all the way up to campuses and GMP space within a short drive in Boston and San Francisco, because they've been in this industry for so long, they really have a huge advantage in that, um, in that space. And as Fred said, Vacaville serves Berkeley and serves UC Davis. Like it just makes a lot of sense to have that close to the R and D and the STEM workers. Yep. Greg, any thoughts from you on this also? <clears throat> Um, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I agree with what what these guys have, have said. I, I think some of the challenges as it relates to kind of trying to nail down the the manufacturing piece is, um, you know, as as Paul was saying, I mean, we, we my experience, a lot of these companies find you know R and D regular R and D buildings, and they're able to build a building within a building or convert that R and D building, and it's just what's closest to to their operation and their employees, and so. Um, I just haven't seen really the clustering of manufacturing. And so to develop, um, you know, develop on a spec basis, uh, manufacturing space, um, while I, I applaud it, it's, uh, it's felt really risky in our mind just because, uh, you know, having seen and, and talked to a lot of tenants, they just tend to gravitate towards a lot of buildings that can be purposed for that. So, hard to really, you know, build a thesis around it where it's, it, there hasn't really developed a cluster, but maybe Vacaville will become that hopefully. Yeah. 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 I, I would be remiss not to ask, uh, you know, a question around, uh, you know, interest rates and, uh, you know, inflation um, and, and its impact on the, on, on the industry. Um, let's see, who can I pick on first on this one? Uh, uh, Fred, you want to, you want to kick us off here? <laughs> Sure. Um, I mean, again, as I said before, I think it's, it's, there's no industry that's completely immune to it. Um, you know, again, just kind of through the lens that we've been viewing more on the manufacturing side, um, you know, we've, we've had a, a tremendous amount of demand and with that, I've had conversations and, and have had some loose conversations um, and are active in those conversations now, but even with some of the pricing, um, you know, our costs have gone up, uh, construction costs have gone up. Um, I think the, the, the purpose built nature of the facility and, 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 you know, going from a steel frame or going from tilt wall to steel frame, obviously there's added costs, but financing costs um, have certainly increased as well. And um, for a lot of tenants, they need the space, right? Especially if they're in the manufacturing uh, world, it's, it's, you know, they're either going to spend their capital on the facility or they're going to borrow um, or they're going to lease. And, uh, those financing costs impact everyone. So, you know, our ability to, to pass those costs on uh, to the tenant via higher rent um, has been there. We haven't had a lot of pushback because there's there's not, uh, that's just kind of the way of the world right now with rising interest rates. They're either going to face it in higher lease rates or they're going to face it in higher financing uh, rates associated with building their own facilities. Um, and that capital to them is precious. Uh, so, Again, trying to you know, trying to peg that. I mean, it's it's a it's a good time to be establishing you know long term lease rates. Um, you know, if if uh, if you can do that. Greg, you have a major project upcoming in Burlingame. You have a big project also in um, Cambridge, Boston area. Uh, both are you know the millions of square feet, right? Yep. Um, 
what what does this mean for you guys? You know, you're kind of on the front end of this process. Um, maybe that's putting on the on the on the and on this on the on the spotlight a little bit, but just just oh, curious, man. you know, what what it means for you guys. Yeah, I mean, look, we're fortunate in in Cambridge. We've built two million square feet. It's all pre-leased to credit tenants, so you know the financing isn't isn't so much an issue there. I think. I, I look I, and w- our project in Burlingame, we're in entitlements now. We don't really have to make any decisions today, um, you know, to to go or, or not go. We're, we're working with the city and we'll, we'll see how that shakes out and where the world is at that time. I think the point that's, you know, I think more, you know, something that, that we're watching on on really new projects that, that folks are buying, whether it's, hey, I'm going to buy an office building and convert it and just getting financing for that sort of project today, I think is extremely challenging to say the least. And so as you think about pipeline and, and all, all, all these buildings that we mentioned that, you know, were labeled as perfect life science conversions, I just think a lot of that noise will go away and you're going to be, you're going to be left to people that are actually well capitalized already have financing or are already in process of going because I, I just don't see a lot of people being able to finance those those projects today. So I think that look, I mean it it's it's not a it's not great. It's you know it affects us all in some way or the other, but in some ways it's also going to limit the the pipeline of of competing projects uh coming down the pipeline. So that's that's not such a bad thing. It, it, you know, and then the inflation piece uh, obviously affects the companies and and um and so that's everything's going to be more expensive right now. And, and uh, so there's, you know, those are some of the headwinds that are facing uh, the industry. I know we've talked about a lot of, you know, good things that continue with, um, with life sciences, but um, you know, it's, it's a tough climate for them. Uh, just sure. the cost of, of doing business, uh, the supplies, the construction, all of those things, and then the, the capital, right? So um, it's not without its, its headwinds. I think uh, we've talked about a lot of the fundamentals, which we still are all uh, on this panel believers of. And I think it'll be one of the, you know, hopefully the highlights of 2023 um, in terms of just the, the real estate space and activity. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, uh, how about for you? So you said you have a couple of projects that you own in the, in the Bay Area, one in, one, in, one in Cambridge. You know, how does the financial environment sort of impact your, your investments at this point? Yeah, so knock on wood, we just closed our uh, our construction loan in Boston, so we're very happy to get that done. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that's unique to life science is there's no real training wheels or small life science deals when when you're building buildings for well over a thousand bucks a foot and as expensive as land is in South San Francisco and Cambridge. Um, there are no so where the lending community is today. There's a lot of demand for the regional banks, but they play in the sub hundred million dollar construction loan game, and as Craig knows with his deals and, uh, you know, these are two, three hundred, four, five hundred million dollar loans. And so you're really at that point talking about the debt fund world, um, which is really still there. Um, and that's who we closed our deal with. It's really the A note market that's really in disarray right now. There's no way for them to syndicate that. Um, so that's really the problem with large deals. And unfortunately, most of the deals are large and speculative. Um, if you've got a pre-lease deal, uh, you know, you can get that pretty, but I would say one bright spot we're hearing, I heard of a deal in Boston that Lynn Lease and Ivanhoe Cambridge are doing. Um, we're seeing some foreign banks that have been uncompetitive for many, many years with uh, kind of the money center banks of Wells Fargo and JP Morgan in the States. We're beating them out on rate. So we're seeing them for the first time. They want to invest in life science and they just haven't been competitive. So I've heard of some pretty nice spreads that they've lent and they can do larger deals and they don't have to syndicate. So 
there will be capital that, um, you know, figures out to fill this void right now. It's a very challenging market for large speculative today. The benefit of that, obviously, is existing landlords that are out of the ground and have locked in their rate. But um, the sector's too got too much demand for money not to flow there. And, and there's a lot of people that can build all cash. So I, I view it as a temporary um, problem if you're trying to finance your $500 million speculative deal today. But I don't think it's a long-term issue. And I think there's actually capital out there today. It's just, you know, expensive. And um, But on a $1,400 or $1,500 a foot cost of the construction budget, it surprisingly doesn't really move the interest reserve and caps and some of the stuff. It really is less impactful than maybe a multifamily or an industrial deal just because of the expensiveness of the of life science comparatively. So I was surprised on our deal because we had our spread gap out a couple of times in our underwriting and it really didn't have that big an impact on the financials. And, and we've all talked about how the rates have kept up with that. So I, I view it as kind of a temporary uh, speed bump, but it's actually going to benefit because like Craig said, the weaker hands that their numbers only worked with cheap debt. And those projects shouldn't probably get built anyway. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Steve, on the construction side, obviously, uh, inflation means, you know, higher salaries, but also, you know, it probably wrecks havoc on, um, you know, the, you know, supplies that you guys have to have to obtain, you know, tell us about that and, you know, how, how you're dealing with, with, with things and this, you know, re- readjustment of, you know, pricing, of, you know, across the board. Well, you know, uh, as costs go up, they have to be, you know, passed along to the customer, unfortunately, and the customer passes them along to the tenant. Uh, I will say our opinion is in the last uh, probably 12 months, things have leveled out a little bit from a labor cost and subcontractor type market, but, or, or side of the side of the deal, but material, material increases, we get them all the time. And, you know, it's not only specialty items, it's almost across the board. It's the metal studs, the drywall, the flooring, it's like everybody continually uh, is increasing prices across the board. And um, hopefully that'll, hopefully that'll, you know, I don't know, calm down in the next four to six months or something like that. We hope. Um, But costs are today, if you would have told me three or four years ago, here's where it's going to be, I would have said, there's no way it can go up like that. Well, yeah. there was a way and here we are. So yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're hoping to see some improvement or at least some leveling out, but there are cost increases, um, you know, almost on a weekly, daily basis. Interesting. Are, how are you working with, uh, with uh, you know, with uh, your clients and with uh, what the development community in terms of, you know, engaging with them early on? I mean, I know that's obviously, you know, one, one of the answers, but, you know, maybe give us some anecdotes in terms of, you know, how early and, you know, how, how interactive that whole process is. Well, on all the projects, you know, uh, and, and it's like it's been talked about here a little bit, um, the overall ratio has changed. It was 60-40 and it went 50-50. Now it's actually 60-40 on the lab side. Myself, I think of a lot of that is uh, some of the difficulties, some of the Bay Area type clients have had getting their employees to come back to work. Um, they're not quite ready to do that yet. But um Overall, I think that um, it's, it's, it's going to flatten out or kind of stay the same. I don't think, I think what we're seeing now is going to be the trend for at least the next, you know, 12 months or so. Um, on, and here again, on some of the longer term projects, we're building in uh, an escalation cost, um, a budget, a contingency, so to speak. 
and then working closely with our customers to realize what that looks like. And if it yep. doesn't take effect, kind of where the project's going to be from a financial evolutionary standpoint. Yep. Yep. Steve, you have three people on this panel who are going to hold you to that. That is going to be the same. Yep. So. <laughs> one, one for sure. One more than the other. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, hey, James, I, I, I have to, you know, ask a few questions, you know, about leasing. We have, we have several questions in the, in the, in the group chat about that, you know, also, um, can you tell us about, you know, comps and what, what are you seeing out there or, you know, things that you can, you know, reveal for us, um, you know, as much as possible. Um, you know, what, one of the, one of the questions here made a, made a point of saying that, you know, there hasn't been a lot of leasing, so it's very hard to get, get comps, but, but I would, I would love to hear kind of what, what your perspective is on, on, on all that. Well, I guess I disagree. There has actually been quite a lot of leasing okay. and the comps, which we're getting um, the deals that we're working on and through our, through our network would, would suggest that rental rates are, are certainly staying uh, at, at the current levels, inching up in some areas. Um, broadly speaking for, I would say new development, ground up development, where we've seen some pre-leasing, those, those deals on the peninsula are pushing into the mid sevens on a per square foot per month triple net basis with TI allowances that are uh, around 200 to 225 per square foot. We've seen in the East Bay uh, transactions in the high sixes. We've done one in the, in the low sevens in, in Berkeley. So that, that sort of Emeryville-Berkeley nexus, if you would, um, is, is really not that far behind the peninsula from a, a rental rate standpoint. Um, if you get down into some areas like Palo Alto, um, we did a transaction there for some spec lab space that was into the mid sevens. So again, fully built out, but um, not class A product, just brand new, good quality spec labs. Those, those transactions are again, north of seven. So activity is good. We're, we're seeing it kind of across the spectrum, large pharma deals. Uh, we're seeing still a robust amount of activity on um, the early stage market for again, second gen subleases, turnover space, spec labs. Um, I think the, if there's any gap in the market right now, I feel like it's coming from some of the, the established, but not, not large companies. I think they're sort of taking a, a little bit of a, a pause to see where, see where their science goes, see where um, the, the capital markets go in terms of either, you know, up legs in public financing or partnerships with with pharma. So I think if we've seen um, any specific area uh, in in a little bit of transition, it's it's that kind of established companies, typically um, two three old public companies or or kind of large companies that have been they're still private but have raised hundreds of millions of, of capital. I think they're still taking a. Um, a bit of a breather right now. Yep. Yep. Um, what about in terms of, um, you know, space closer to the central business district, you know, so city versus suburbs, is there, is there any, are there any trends emerging there that you think are of note? Um, I would say I, I did see a few, what I, I think were 
rather ambitious ideas to convert downtown San Francisco office buildings into some lab space. Um, won't mention any buildings by by name, but um, I, I felt those were real long shots, and I think that will that will be the case. Um, we're seeing in San Francisco, obviously ongoing development at Mission Bay, some new developments, some conversions of uh, office buildings, uh, and some repositioning of, of former office spaces. Um, I think Mission Bay will continue to, to grow. Its, its location adjacent to UCSF is yep. still uh, just world-class. So I, I can see the market expanding beyond the current borders of Mission Bay over time. Um, we've certainly seen some things going into Showplace Square. Um, I expect not immediately, but over time, we might see some, some real creep up into uh, Central Soma, which, as many of you know, had very ambitious plans to be the next tech mecca for um, San Francisco, and that's, that's probably not going to happen <laughs> anytime soon. So I could envision as the, the product in Mission Bay fills in over the next couple of years that that would be a, a fairly logical place for additional development to go simply because it's uh, adjacent to core transportation infrastructure yep. it's adjacent to mission bay and it's it's also uh, in close proximity to both um, large residential and amenities yeah 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 we've seen um i would say the trend we're seeing is we've seen in boston now that new is outperforming uh retrofit by a pretty good measure uh for the and we're starting to see stats on that and then we're also seeing urban is outperforming suburban and i asked a broker why what what was some reasons for that and really the takeaway was amenities it's just more of the suburban products in boston are kind of surface park with no restaurants walkable and rail so we are seeing as more and more supply comes on and there is options. It's not, you know, a 0% vacancy like it has been the last few years that um, the more, you know, amenitized urbans and then new purpose built is outperforming retrofit, which we all expected. And, and a lot of the retrofit guys always talked about speed to market was the play there. Um, so we're finally, at least in Boston, seeing that new is outperforming, you know, just old retrofit and then urban is outperforming suburban. Interesting. So almost like a flight to quality, uh, if you will, um, and and looking for amenities, right? More than more than just space. Um, interesting. I I, uh, I think Vlad, I was just going to add. I mean, to support um, exactly what Paul just said on the new. I mean, one thing uh, you know, obviously that we're seeing the, the retrofit. There's certainly challenges from an efficiency standpoint uh, that just add costs uh, throughout the lease term. Um, with the tenants and, and, and with their operations. So new purpose-built, um, you know, not only is it going to be more attractive, tenants might be willing to pay more for it because it, it will ultimately save them costs um, in the long run through their operations. Yeah. Well, uh, let me close here by asking you all kind of the same question, essentially, but I'd love to hear everybody's comments on this. Um, and, and Steve, let me start with, with you. If you look at sort of the next 24, 36 months, you know, what, what will – what will be, um, you know, a few of the trends that will kind of shape your your work and uh, this industry? Well, I think it'll continue kind of like the conversations have gone here. I think some of the retro is going to, um, it's going to, there's definitely going to be a slowdown in the retro. People are figuring out, uh, like, like has been talked about, the immense cost and then some of the long-term um, issues that come along with converting an office to life science or something like that. 
So I think that's going to be more the trend, the out of the ground, um, ground up newer projects are going to uh, probably accelerate while the others kind of retract, so to speak. But there's still some good properties out there that a conversion really works. So I think I think there's going to be a little bit of both. Um, I think the, the purse strings are going to loosen up overall with, a, with some of the smaller uh, bioscience uh, customers that we have that have been uh, very um, leaning towards the value engineering, uh, putting projects on a shelf, you know, kind of a wait and see attitude. I think things are going to get better, but it's probably, you know, six months to a year out. That's, that's kind of what we're hoping for, but uh, we're lucky to be busy now. And I think we're going to be busy into the future. Great. Greg? Um, you know, a couple things for 23. I think we touched on big pharma. I think they're going to play a big role in uh, not only takers of space, as we've already seen in Boston this year, but um, but the M&A and as well as partnering agreements. I could see that uh, being significant in 2023. I think another thing, just as we talk about the evolution of lab space, you know, the, the influence of technology, automation and flexibility within the labs will also increase. Uh, I think that's going to be a huge part and why we're, you know, uh, you know, another reason to be kind of bullish on this industry is just the effects and the efficiencies that technology is bringing to research. Um, and so that that will continue. And I think we'll, you know, we're going to see some amazing companies come out of this area as well as all, all of the regions and technology is going to be a big, big part of that. Yeah. Paul? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think we're in the very early innings of technology and healthcare starting to collaborate and a lot of artificial intelligence being used. There's more data uh, being used now and just how science is run. So I just think the existing clusters are going to continue to outperform. And, you know, when you think about it, Stanford and Berkeley and MIT aren't moving and talent's the only renewable resource there is. And I just think that in the future, when you look at these, um, there's still going to be innovation happening. It's going to be happening in the same spots it has been. And, and, and we're really bullish on that long term. Excellent. Fred? Fred, we can't hear you. Um, just FYI. Sorry about that. Um, the, uh, the Zoom mute. Sorry about that. Uh, so I, I think in 2023, in the short term, um, I, think, I think we're there's going to be a slowdown. There's going to be a lot of, pro I mean, we've already seen projects stop. Um, that's, that's going to continue to happen. I mean, we had, you know, inflation at the highest in 40 years last month. Uh, so the Fed is going to continue to raise rates. Um, they're going to try to curb this as quickly as possible. That's going to impact, you know, capital flows everywhere. I think the, the large pharma companies that have balance sheets, you know, someone said M&A earlier, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be a lot of, uh, buying opportunities for those uh, companies. But I think coming out of the later half of 2023 and coming into 2024, um, it's going to be a great time for the market. There's going to be a lot of pent-up demand. Um, and again, a lot of projects that have been put on hold. Uh, so it'll be a good time um, to uh, to be delivering product at that time. Excellent. And James, I don't know, looks like we may have lost James. Um, I'll make a prediction on his behalf that he's going to stay busy. So um, that will be my... That'll be my final thought here. So gentlemen, thank you so much for being part of this. Really, really appreciate it. Um, great insight and feedback about what's 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 happening across the life science in the industry. Um, stay well and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Vlad. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. 
Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business. Thank you.